This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pay from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the East TraumaCast. For this edition, we partnered with the guys from the Behind the Knife podcast, a new but incredibly popular podcast covering all aspects of surgery. Today's podcast features interviews, discussions, and highlights from the 2016 Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery Conference in Las Vegas, also known as the Maddox Meeting. This world-famous conference is in its 49th year this year and is arguably the top conference in the United States for trauma professionals looking for CME updates and cutting-edge advances in trauma care. But before we go to interviews and highlights from the meeting, I had a chance to sit down with the guys from the Behind the Knife podcast and talk about their story and how they got started. All right. Well, we are here with the Behind the Knife crew, and uh, we're covering this meeting uh, as uh, kind of co co-podcasters, uh, but I uh, wanted to interview the guys from the Behind the Knife podcast for a few minutes and, and just find out about this thing, So, because this has been hugely popular in a short time. So uh, I'm here with uh, Scott Steele, who's the, the uh, attending surgeon who started this podcast, and two of the residents who run the podcast, Jason Bingham and John McClellan. Uh, so Scott, why don't we start with you, and just for people who haven't listened to it, can you just tell them what is Behind the Knife? You know, I think I think Jason has probably the best way because it was actually the resident's idea who approached me with this. But uh, and it actually probably that's where we changed things a little bit in terms of its direction and its origins once they kind of came to me. So Jay, I'll let you talk about how you guys actually came up with the the initial thought of kind of what behind the knife was. Sure. I mean, the, the credit mostly actually goes to Kevin Canary, who's the one guy who's not here. But it was. Uh, his idea, we both were you know, pretty avid podcast listeners. We listened to Serial, NPR. Uh, we listened to ICU Rounds. We listened to East TraumaCast. Um, listened to a lot of podcasts and, and really found what was out there kind of lacking as far as it goes for uh, surgical trainees, surgical residents, med students. Um, and so uh, we had had the idea over a couple beers one night that uh, we should start a podcast, which was mainly focused on education for residents. Uh, we texted uh, our, our mentor, uh, Dr. Steele, here. And uh, anybody who knows Dr. Steele, he's a very high-energy, high-speed person. And within a week, he had had uh, Carlos Pellegrini, uh, uh, John Cameron, uh, Ben Starnes, you know, all these heavy hitters lined up to come on a podcast, which at that point uh, didn't even exist. So uh, from there, we, well, we got, now we have to do this. We have people confirmed to come on the podcast, so um, and from there, it's really kind of taken off and skyrocketed. You know, the one thing I will say is that when they came to me and they, we talked, we we literally over the phone one night said, it, the thought process was, you know, maybe at Madigan we'll do this for the Madigan residents only, and we'll just have some of the local staff just do some things for absite review. That was the, actually the original goal, absite review. And I remember, I think I said to you guys, I said, why don't we do something like uh, that that Lipscomb guy, something like a inside the actor's studio kind of. And we were, we were going to call it behind the scalpel. We thought it was too many syllables and everything like that. And so 
we settled on uh, behind the knife, but you know, I, I really do have to give credit because um, Carlos Pellegrini has been a mentor to me, as Matt, as we all know him, being out uh, on the West Coast. And I, we kind of, I got in touch with Carlos, and he said, he literally said, he goes, Scott, if you ask me, how can I turn it down? And like most things, once he did it, and we had the opportunity to do it from him, then you know, uh, being on the editorial board of Annals, I reached out to Dr. Lillamo, and he said, absolutely, who has been a big fan, mm-hmm. and actually kind of helped us get some other people. And then the kind of the cards all kind of started, you know, the house of cards started falling in our favor. And uh, we, we, we would be amiss if we didn't say thank you to the, to the word of mouth by many of our podcast listeners out there who made it spread like wildfire to the point right now where it's just kind of taken off. And it's been, as we would all say, probably one of the coolest things that we've done. So why don't you uh, just tell us in, in a couple sentences, you have the idea to do this podcast and you have some people lined up. What do you need to do to make that a reality? I mean, I'm sure there's equipment you have to get. Do you, do you have to run your own site? or Can you get anything yeah. on iTunes that you just have an idea for? No, I think what a lot of podcasts they start with is that they have an idea they want to do a podcast, and they, they sit down and they start recording. However, in today's world, there's a lot that goes into publishing these podcasts and making them well-known to people. And that's where developing a website and making it user-friendly so people can find your podcast and see everything as well as having a social media prevalence, a prevalence with uh, Twitter. And that's the main way people spread the word. Twitter and Facebook is how people get out there. That's why, that's why Behind the Knife is so big nowadays. So it, as much as people, you know, um, the older generation of surgeons want to kind of shy away from things like that, I think that's where it's actually important for the younger generation of surgeons. And you'll see that when you go to these conferences where they integrated all those modalities into, you know, promoting their conferences and was why we're here today. You know, I just do want to echo... Uh, Jason's words. Obviously, Kevin can't be here. Kevin was a, obviously a very driving influence in terms of not only making this with Jason up, but also kind of pushing it forward and continue to be. Yeah, this is a team effort. And he, you know, I had the wonderful opportunity for the guys to reach out to me. And again, I have my own pathology. So uh, we kind of took it to a different level that was originally constructed. But it's really, I would say more than anything else about a podcast and the, the thing that people comes up to. I had a resident come up to me here today. He goes, I think I know you. I, I've heard your voice so many different times. Uh, it's, it's weird to see you in person. You know? You're much more handsome than I thought you'd be. No, he didn't say that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is the fact that they said that I, I, would, I would say talking to these people, at the end of the day, I'm a surgical nerd, right? And so having the opportunity to talk to these people, not only about surgical topics, but about I remember John Cameron talking about baseball and, you know, some of these different things that, you know, Dr. Pellegrini, where he grew up in Argentina, and yeah, just a lot of the people we've had on the podcast. It's probably been the coolest thing that I've done, and it's, uh, in addition to being educational, it's also been kind of fascinating on so many different levels. All right, well, you guys have done a great job with the podcast, obviously. So uh, just the final questions for Jason and John. Um, how do you think this has been, doing this as a resident? Do you think this has benefited you in terms of developing as a surgeon? Uh, I think absolutely. Uh, I think I learn more um, from doing this podcast than almost anything I do, the people I talk to. I mean, we, you got to sit down with uh, John Cameron and have him tell me how he does his whipples, you know, things like that. And the people I've met, the conferences I've been to, um, it's been, a, it's been uh, a sacrifice. It's been a huge time commitment, but I think it's been uh, as beneficial as, you know, any, any research project or anything else I've been a part of as a resident. Yeah, I'll just echo what Jason said. Coming to these conferences and meeting uh, these people that you only really hear about it through textbooks and from you know the older surgeons, and uh, it's just, it's pretty amazing. The stuff they have to say, 
and the fact that they you know that they know who we are and it's like you know you know we do this and they they kind of want to be on the podcast sometimes it's that's pretty amazing to see here as well all right guys well thanks a lot and we look forward to covering the rest of the uh, conference okay and now i'll turn it over to the behind the knife crew for coverage of our first day at the maddox conference if you're interested and want to hear more from days two and days three then head over to the Behind the Knife podcast, which you can find on their website or on iTunes. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Behind the Knife. We have a special episode today uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, we got uh, some new music, as you just heard, which is very long overdue. And number two, we are live from the Trauma Critical Care and Acute Care Surgery Conference 2016 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, this is an awesome conference that uh, Dr. Ken Maddox put together. Um, it's really turned into something special. So special thanks to Dr. Maddox and for Mary Allen for making it possible to be here. Uh, we're going to have some panel discussions with some of the participants in the conference and, and talk about the latest and greatest from uh, the world of trauma surgery. But before we get started, we're going to sit down with Dr. Ken Maddox, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the conference and how it, it got to be what it is. Uh, so here's Dr. Maddox. So behind the knife here, kicking the conference off, we're here with uh, Dr. Ken Maddox. We wanted to thank you so much for uh, allowing us the opportunity to be here and cover the conference. We're having a fantastic time so far. Um, and we're wondering if you could just give us a little bit of history of, of the conference, of how it started and, and uh, how it got to be what it is today. Why it started, too. John Batdorf came to Las Vegas in the, uh, goodness, late 50s, and uh, uh, Kirk Comack was here with him as well. Uh, Las Vegas is a wide-open town, and uh, Caesar's Palace, when they first came, did not exist. There weren't many specialists uh, here, and general surgeons did everything. And um, in the 1960s, uh, emergency medicine did not exist. Ambulance services did not exist. And across the country, there were beginning thoughts of uh, ambulance services, CPR, uh, courses in uh, CPR, resusciani. And so initially, uh, John Batdorf called a few of his friends in Denver, uh, Hank Cleveland, Cuth Owens, and uh, uh, those four individuals began to put on various courses and the first some of the first courses they put on were called uh, Western States Committees on Trauma because the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma was beginning to emerge it, um, they also put on cancer courses and courses for nurses and the one which seemed to have the most impact was the trauma and it was a wild open town and there was a lot of trauma Evil Knievel jumping over uh, 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 the uh, the fountains and other people emulating him and having motorcycle wrecks and then a lot of other things that went on in, in, in Las Vegas. Uh, not a lot of folks like to come to Las Vegas, and it was a long way to refer people. So they began putting on a course every year, and it was mainly case-based, and... Uh, 
They met a new young man who was national sales manager at a new hotel way out in the country called Caesar's Palace. Oh, wow. And uh, about 1989, 1988, uh, he asked me if I would take over running the conference. At that time, uh, we the maximum attendance was about 250, 300 individuals, but it was uh, a recurrent group. Uh, they liked to come. And it was downstairs on the first floor. The current uh, towers of Caesar's Palace didn't exist, and the strip was beginning to uh, develop. And... Uh, uh, as I took it over, our vision was to expand this to a national meeting, international meeting, to get the best of the best speakers, uh, to create a syllabus. They'd never had a syllabus uh, mm-hmm. before or even even a few pieces of paper that gave the listing of the program. Often, I didn't, when I came out to talk, did not even know what I was going to talk about until uh, I got here. Um the management of Caesar's Palace began to change. The casinos began to change and begin to expand. And uh, uh, the cost of shows went from uh, negotiating tip money that you gave the mater d when you came through the door to the kind of tickets that you sell that you see now. Uh, but I noticed something very uh, unique. Uh, the percentage of attendance at a medical meeting in Las Vegas turned out to be higher than any other city in the United States because people came to Las Vegas to play, to gamble, and to swim and to sit in the sun. But it was a adult Disneyland where there was no semblance of reality, no clocks, uh, in the in the in the gaming rooms, it was dark. You couldn't see the doors. Play money, um, uh, fake uh, fake uh, anatomy on the showgirls because uh, silicone had suddenly been developed. So they retreated to the meeting room to uh, have a semblance of reality, and so that was an advantage. That was an opportunity to create a curriculum to teach people what was changing in medicine, changing in surgery, changing in resuscitation, and uh, that happened. And uh, so I was able to market that to say, uh, it's a good place to get folks to come and come again and come again, and if the product is a good learning experience, they'll come back. And word of mouth mouth became... uh, literally the uh, uh, best sales. I also uh, had trained in a place where uh, there was absolute uh, maximum attention to detail, uh, pursuit of excellence, and discipline under Dr. DeBakey. And uh, less than perfection, less than... uh, uh, having something work absolutely correct, uh, much like the current a- airline industry, uh, uh, 
was would not work. So I created that same environment to the faculty. We're going to have an, we're going to have new slides. We're going to have a uh, syllabus. Uh, we're going to stick on time. <laughs> we're going to uh, start on time, end on time. And if you, uh, it's a privilege to be part of this faculty. And if you don't abide by those rules, uh, we're not going to bitch and moan. We're just not going to invite you back. <laughs> and uh, there is just no discussion. And nobody believed that I would do that. Well, uh, we did. And uh, uh, some big-name people uh, stopped coming. And they stopped coming because their work was sloppy. And they'd present papers that had been presented at other meetings, and I wasn't going to have that. So part of the reputation here has been uh, attention to detail and uh, uh, provide... People who are taking care of patients, uh, the latest information on what they needed to know to save a person's life tomorrow. And so that's the audience. Many of these people, this is their only meeting of the year. And they're the decision maker from small communities all across the country. And um, uh, that's kind of a good reputation to have. And they're not going to get p-values or uh, a bunch of buzzwords that the current insurance company or political uh, means of, of uh, funding health care. But they come here to say, what's going to help me take care of my patients where I'm the only doc in that community? And so that's where we are today. Well, I can say that uh, your hard work has definitely shows in the conference. We've heard several people say that this is their absolute favorite meeting they come to a year. We heard one person specifically say this is the only meeting they come to where every year they learn something that's going to change their practice tomorrow. So that, that speaks to exactly what you were just talking every, about. Every, every year I get, I get phone calls, tears in their eyes. Uh, I learned something last week at your conference. I just saved somebody's life. Wow. I, I would not have been able to do last week That's because incredible. I didn't know it existed. And uh, it just takes one of those, and uh, you feel very good, and yeah. it's made your week, made your year. Well, Dr. Maddox, we appreciate you taking just a little bit of time to discuss what's the history. I mean, this is a great conference. Thank you again for having us, and we'll enjoy the next couple great. days. So. And... Uh, now we've added uh, the internet to communicate with each other during the conference, and you all have participated yeah, we're in that. <laughs> so we're back here at the 2016 Acute Care Trauma Conference in Las Vegas, and we are very pleased to have three distinguished guests right now. And uh, we'll start out, uh, Dr. Matthew Martin. Matt, uh, tell us where you're from, and talk a little bit about uh, what you spoke about at the conference today. All right. Yeah. Hi. Good to be on again. Uh, I'm Matt Martin. I'm the trauma medical director at Madigan Army Medical Center. Home of behind the knife. Uh, Partial home. <laughs> I, I was speaking about uh, direct-to-OR trauma resuscitation today, and this is uh, mainly out of uh, experience in Portland at the level one there, where we, we have a program where certain patients will be identified who we think have a high risk of needing emergent intervention. And those patients, instead of bringing them to a trauma bay in the emergency room, get brought directly to the operating room where they have their initial trauma evaluation, and then if they need a life-saving intervention, you can start that right away in an operating room environment 
instead of being stuck in the emergency room where we know it's, it's suboptimal to be doing major surgery or major life-saving interventions. So, Matt, one of the things that you have the unique opportunity to do is to work at several different trauma-type systems. So that's easy for the people that are in places like we, that you guys are at here. So what do you say about these other smaller institutions that may not have that access? Is it something that's doable? Is it something that you can change the system around? And if so, how, how, does, how do you make that happen? Yeah, so, so one, you can look at your system and, and see if it would be reasonable to do it in your system. Uh, having, having a trauma OR close to the ER helps a lot, so proximity goes a long way. Uh, if, if it's just not feasible in your system and you're not going to have the volume or, you know, the, the OR is in a remote location from the ER, uh, then, then you just need to make your program where you streamline a process for a patient that would, would be a direct OR. You identify them early, you minimize their time in the emergency room, you do the minimal needed evaluation, and then you get them to the operating room as soon as possible. So kind of, we call it a direct OR light. So one of the other people we have here is Dr. Marty Schreiber. Marty, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, what you talked about. And actually, before you talk about what you talked about, I'd like you to kind of comment on how your experience with direct OR maybe has contrasted a little bit. You spoke about it in the panel just a little bit ago with Matt's. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Marty Schreiber. I'm the Chief of Trauma at uh, Oregon Health and Science University, and I'm a Colonel U.S. Army Reserve. I've been deployed uh, several times. Uh, in terms of uh, Matt's topic, uh, we have been doing direct OR for the past about six years. Uh, we uh, obtain the information uh, pre-hospital on our beepers. Uh, we can tell if the patient's hypotensive. We know their mechanism of injury. Uh, hypotensive patient with a torso injury, we verify as they come in the door of the emergency department if that patient is Meeting the criteria, we'll just direct them to the elevator, which takes them directly to the operating room. So we're selective. Uh, we're doing this primarily on penetrating patients, uh, torso trauma, hypotensive. Uh, we believe there's very little good we can do in the emergency department. The patient needs bleeding stop. The place to be is in the operating room. So they go directly to the operating room. And what are your thoughts about the smaller community-type hospitals? Is this, is this something that you can do, even if, you know, physical barriers? Matt brought up a great point. You're, it's easy when your CT scan's right there, but it's when it's way down the hall or whatever. Like, what are your thoughts on that? So it's actually interesting. So small hospital, uh, you know, logistically it's quite feasible because the small hospitals, everything's in one place. The problem at the small hospitals, you don't always have the right people there. So if it's nighttime and you're in a rural setting, uh, you may not even have an anesthesiologist in the building and the surgeon's at home. So I think the, the problems aren't logistical from the standpoint of the building. The problems are logistical from the standpoint of who's around. Uh, so maybe in the middle of the day when everybody's there, you can do a direct tour, but, uh, you know, smaller hospitals just don't have the right people to do it. Dr. Martin, can you talk a little bit about what uh, you've done at the, the Level 2 Center that you work at? You talked a little about it in your talk, that on average it takes 45 minutes to 110 minutes to get somebody to the OR, but there's some things that you've done in order to kind of speed up that process. Uh, yeah, well, one of the things we did is we made a zero divert policy where we're, we're not going on trauma divert. We had the operating room agree that they would keep a trauma OR ready and available. Uh, but the most important thing was having somebody who gets the operating room ready for you as part of the trauma team. Uh, and, and at Madigan, that's the CRNA or anesthesiologist on call and the OR nurse, and they'll come to a level one trauma. And if you decide you need to go to the operating room, you turn to them and tell them we need the operating room, and then they start the wheels in motion for that. Uh, so that minimizes your time of trying to call a bunch of people or, or getting an OR ready. They're right there with you. And I, th I think that that's the biggest uh, plus we've had in terms of greasing the skids to get to the OR quickly. 
Dr. Salim, would you mind uh, first introducing yourself, where you're from, and uh, tell us what your experience is with uh, getting patients to the OR? Sure. I'm Ali Salim. I'm the chief of trauma at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, we actually do have a protocol for direct-to-OR, but at, as I had mentioned on the panel, we've probably used it once in the past 12 months. And our criteria is basically patients who were transferred in who have already been identified as having some intra-abdominal source of bleeding that needs to go to the operating room, and we just bypass the ED in those situations. And we have a protocol with our, our air tra- transport uh, providers, uh, Boston MedFlight, who know and actually ask us as they're bringing someone in whether this patient needs to go direct to the OR. So we're going to circle back and change topics because I know your time is limited. Marty, we're going to go back to you and tell the listeners a little bit about kind of what you spoke about today regarding the, you know, the fluid resuscitation and kind of the evolution of that and uh, some of the high points. So my assigned topic was uh, the rise and fall of fluid resuscitation, and really what I talked about was the evolution of fluid. Uh, it's interesting because uh, a lot of this is governed by uh, activities in war, and for instance, uh, during the Vietnam War, crystalloid resuscitation was dominant, and we noticed during that period of time that patients were getting ARDS and multiple organ failure. However, despite that, uh, crystalloid resuscitation uh, was was used uh, almost overzealously into the 80s and early 90s, and it was it was in the mid 90s that people started to come up with data, particularly the Houston group, Dr. Maddox leading it that uh, hypotensive resuscitation or even no resuscitation until bleeding was controlled was uh, uh, starting to be noticed as an important way to treat patients. Uh, It really wasn't popularized, though, until the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan when the principle of resuscitation really became minimizing resuscitation to adequate perfusion as measured by mental status and radial pulse. And I think that uh, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, so many people being deployed, that, that actually... That practice was brought back to the United States and really now is a standard of care. Marty, how do you change people's practice patterns? How do you avoid and change the ATLS old algorithm of, boom, they get two liters of crystalloid and then you go from there? Uh, that mindset, how do, you, how do you deal with it? You know, it, it takes decades. It takes a long time. But the way, the way that you accelerate the change, I think, is with wartime. You know, during wartime, it's really an, an event where you have massive numbers of casualties in a single place. People learn from it. They get very experienced. New technologies are developed. And I really think it takes something uh, on that level to change practice. Now, the other things that change practice are good prospective randomized trials, good research, uh, meetings like this one, where you have 1,200 people in a room, and you're talking about the most recent methods of treating trauma patients. Those kinds of things change practice. Uh, It it really is It's not easy. It's not easy, especially when... uh, ATLS is looked upon as the standard of care, ATLS is very conservative and kind of drags behind change. And if you look at the most recent version of ATLS, it still says give one to two liters of crystalloid. Now, that may change as time goes on, but uh, medicine tends to be fairly conservative, and it, it takes time to change it. So we'll, we'll uh, jump over to Dr. Martin, Dr. Salim. We all, I think it's kind of working its way into the conscious now that crystalloid is bad for resuscitation. What's the role of colloid? Um, Great question. I I think, you know, as sort of Marty's talking about the rise and fall of of fluids, I think there's probably over 50 to 60 years' worth of data that's compared colloids versus crystalloid, and still we don't really know the 
best patient population for colleagues. I will say, you know, I think there was a little time there where we thought sepsis, septic shock patients were the perfect patients for colloid, and I think after a couple of studies we realized that's really not the case. Then we thought ARDS, and now we realize that's not the case. So I think probably the only group of patients that may benefit uh, are those liver failure patients that when you have high-volume paracentesis and you have to replace them with fluid, probably that's the patient population that benefits from colloids. Matt, you've had time, obviously, in combat and uh, continue to be active duty. One of the things that is that, that Marty mentioned is uh, war brings about change. And so give, give people a glimpse in the future. What's, can, you, can you tell us about some things, uh, places we may be going, uh, some, some fluid uh, things that might be on the horizon that may sooner find our way into the civilian sector? Yeah, well, I, I think Marty's, Marty's point was great that, you know, with these patients are bleeding, they need blood. They don't need colloid or crystalloid. Uh, But what do you do in the scenario where you don't have blood? So you're not going to have blood in all pre-hospital environments. Uh, The current military TC3 practice is to use Hexten, small bolts of Hexten, so it actually is a colloid. But but the main reason for that is logistical reasons of it's a lot easier to carry smaller amounts of colloid that give you more bang for your buck than crystalloid. Uh, But I think there's been some real concerns about the colloids, especially Hexten and Hespan, because they can alter the coagulation system. There's also been some studies suggesting renal injury uh, with those type of colloids. So, so I think the jury is out. I think if, if you had your, your choice of anything, as Marty said, I think whole blood would be the, the fluid I would choose. There, there's a lot of interesting research that actually Marty is doing, looking at freeze-dried products where you can reconstitute them. You know, just add water and you've got FFP. Uh, I, I think that's probably one of the most exciting things about the future of uh, fluid resuscitation. What do you think, Marty? Really, uh, you know, I, I think uh, my goal is to is to make whole blood use uh, popular. Uh, I, I, I'm, I clearly believe that uh, whole blood results in better outcomes. Even if you take components and you give them in a one to one to one ratio, what you get is really not. Uh, comp- it doesn't really compare well to whole blood. You know, the hematocrit's about 29 percent. The platelet count's 87,000. You get about 65 percent factor function. Uh, and about half the amount of fibrinogen that's in a unit of whole blood. So if you, a unit of whole blood has everything in it. Uh, it is, it's, it's, it's what the patient's bleeding. It's what the patient needs. Everything else is second best or worse. So I think that whole blood's the way to go. Uh, there's a, you know, a number of reasons to use other things like lyophilized plasma. Uh, obviously, it would be beneficial in a wartime scenario where, where FFP just isn't feasible. So there are some second and third bests, but uh, whole blood is really the way to go. So, Dr. Wright, if you could just round out this topic for us, if you could just, what's your algorithm? When a patient comes in, a trauma patient, hypotensive, some crystalloid, no crystalloid, what product do you reach for first? If you could just kind of walk us through what you're thinking. So in our system, we, uh, we're notified when patients are coming from the pre-hospital setting. Our beeper tells us what their mechanism injury is, what their blood pressure is, and what their GCS is. If it sounds like a patient who's going to need blood or a massive transfusion, uh, we will call for what we call a 4 by 4 that 4x4 contains four units of red cells and four units of FFP. Uh, they'll receive minimal uh, resuscitation from crystalloid, and we'll, if that patient is hypotensive, looks like they're going to need a massive transfusion, we immediately start the 4x4. We give them one-to-one ratio of plasma and red cells. If that box is open and starts to being used, then we, we then uh, go immediately into a massive transfusion protocol, which contains one-to-one-to-one plasma to platelets to red cells. 
So we're very pleased to have another uh, addition to our panel here this morning, a recent back-to-back, uh, -back, it was probably the first back-to-back -back BTK uh, publishing, uh, Dr. Kenji Adama. Kenji, welcome and again, and uh, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and, and give some high points about what you spoke about in the conference today. Ah, great. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Uh, Kenji Adama, I work in uh, Los Angeles at uh, LA County, and I talked about subclavian injuries this morning. Uh, Dr. Naba, you, if you would, uh, you gave a very like an awesome how I do it of how to expose uh, the the subclavian artery, subclavian vein. Uh, would you mind just for our listeners walking us through that? What incision you make? How you do your exposure? Uh, sure, no, no problem at all. I think that uh, you know there's always been so much uh, myth surrounding the the subclavian, and I, I think it really comes down to the right side being the same as the left side. Uh, we try to keep it as simple as possible. We'll start with a clavicular incision for all periclavicular holes. Um, you know, it's really a great utility incision, regardless of the side that you're working on. If you have a distal injury or an axillary injury, you can move that into the delta pectoral groove. And if it's a more proximal injury that you need control with, you can just add a sternotomy. Um, I think that that, therefore, leaves removal of the clavicle and moving the clavicle out of the way the most important single step. Um, and once that's done, and we just uh, disjoin it uh, where it connects into the uh, sternum and you move it out of the way, you have really full unimpeded access to the uh, artery and the vein. Uh, Dr. Salim, you, you actually gave one of the more, uh, I would say, uh, provocative and uh, controversial topics this morning. It's, it's talking about the use of whole body CT scan uh, in trauma patients. And you, you presented some evidence that uh, whole body CT increases survival in, in trauma patients. Could you just uh, briefly kind of go over what you talked about this morning? Yeah, I was uh, fortunately asked to talk about scanning and sort of the increased use of scanning and, and kind of focused on why, and I kind of looked at not so obvious reasons of why we tend to scan a little more. And one of them is just the, the outcome aspect. And I think uh, it's very provocative data that's starting to come out that where they're looking at patients who are very frequently scanned, uh, all types of patients, standard trauma patients, hypotensive trauma patients, bleeding trauma patients, head injured trauma patients, and comparing those who've had whole body scanning versus more directed scanning, more x-rays, more physical exam, have actually found that those who have whole body scanning um, actually have better survival overall in these big, large database uh, studies. Now, the reason isn't so obvious, and I would suspect is that part of it is probably because of maybe some bias. Those patients who get the whole body scanning were probably a little more stable than those patients who didn't. And also maybe there's some truth to having a diagnosis uh, quicker in terms of management that may help outcomes a little quicker. So there's obviously the causation versus yeah. association argument with all of this stuff. But all, all three of you guys obviously are very uh, well-respected and prominent trauma surgeons, but she also, this is an acute care general surgery conference uh, as well in addition to trauma. And so what do you think about the whole body CT, Ollie, for general surgery patients as they come through the door? I mean, we're seeing more and more of these septic patients come through, and should they be getting whole body CT scans from head to toe, the guy that hits, and they're not in a trauma, but, you, you know, you see them in the ER and they're sick, and what do you do about that? Well, I think the technology's there, and you, a lot of times you just want to make the diagnosis. So I think it's reasonable... You know, probably the most common thing that we do is scan the belly for someone who comes in with abdominal pain. Um, so much so that we're actually trying to move away from it and trying to have all these algorithms of when uh, you can just do physical exam and ultrasound. 
But the reality is the, the CAT scan is still the gold standard in terms of trying to make the diagnosis for these uh, patients for intra-abdominal pathology. I have a question just for, just for each of you. Um, if uh, I was always taught, you know, you should you should be selective about the studies you get. Um, and in light of this data, do you think that in a trauma situation we're underusing the PAN scan um, by going more to oh we can really get away without a chest CT, we can just get a chest X-ray, do an abdominal film, a head CT? Do you think that we're perhaps unusing, underusing? Whole body no, CT? I, I think we should always be selective. And as Kenji said on the panel, I think we should always know why we're ordering the scans that we are getting. I will say that sort of the pendulum is going back to being more liberal with scanning just because our patient population tends to be a little older. And even some of the data that USC has shown that, you know, to clear a spine, physical exam is unreliable. So now we're going towards scanning just to clear the spine because we also know plain films aren't very good compared to CAT scans. So we're almost going back to being more liberal in scanning just to be able to clear spine so yeah and, and I think uh, I think the whole body CT has a role I think it's for blunt multi-system trauma and, and one of the things I think it does is it, it's kind of the great equalizer it definitely reduces variability you know if you're being seen by someone who doesn't do trauma a lot uh, versus somebody who does trauma every day uh, you know that's going to be an equalizer if they both get a pan CT the one who doesn't do trauma a lot who might miss something they're going to get all that information so so I think you also have to take into account your expertise where the patient's being seen uh, and, and, and who's taking care of it in order in those studies uh, you get a lot of valuable information the other thing I'll see that that I disagree with somewhat is you know you'll you'll, you'll see someone scan the head face c-spine abdomen pelvis and then they'll be high-fiving you know because they left out the chest they left out you know this 12 inches of the body they didn't scan that's not a victory and, and i wouldn't call that you know true selective ct scan use I, I, and that's there and i say you know just add in the chest you know what, what's the difference there it's not like you're, you're not massively increasing the radiation dose so I, I believe in uh, good history and physical examination and selective use of CT scanning in, in the correct uh, patient population. However, if, you're, if you work in a level one trauma center, you take care of a lot of high-speed motor vehicle crashes, people hit by trains, they've got facial injuries, they've got neck pain, uh, they've got chest pain, tender spines, they're going to get whole body, whole body CT scan. They're going to get the head, face, spines, chest, abdomen, pelvis. The other, the other thing here as well is that if they have a tender spine, and you're, you're, you're going to, you know, CT scanning is better than plain films. We know that. It's more sensitive. If you're already scanning the, the thoracic spine and the lumbar spine, they're really getting the same radiation they will get to, to do the chest and abdomen as well. So frequently in anybody who's at risk for a spine injury, I'm doing chest, abdomen, and pelvis as well. So the reality of the situation is it's, it's common to do whole body CT even if you're selective because you're seeing highly injured, multiply injured patients and you really need to scan everything to get the answer. Just realize it's also selection bias. We're not talking about all patients that come in. You know, we get called about the patients who are really injured. Mm -hmm. So it's not talking about all the patients that walk through the door in the emergency room. It's really the patients that we get referred to evaluate. Yeah, and, and Marty and I have, have spent a decent amount of time in tents, uh, you know, in a desert somewhere. Uh, together? Where you don't have a, in, yes, together. <laughs> where you don't have a CT scanner necessarily, and, and you would think, oh, you know, how can you function without it? I can. I struggle to think of a time when I thought, God, I really wish I had the CT scanner. Uh, you know, with a good physical exam, the mechanisms that are blast and penetrating, though, and an ultrasound, and if you know what you're doing with ultrasound, 
it's, it was extremely rare where I would even be thinking of a CT scan would have helped me there, other than the guy shot in the head or, or you know, who we suspected a, a head bleed. So uh, interesting uh, on this comment. Uh, so I agree on the trauma part of this, but when you work in uh, some of these third-world countries and you're taking care of, say, children with abdominal pain, you know, they'll present. It looks like appendicitis. And if you go operate on them, some, a lot of them have worms. And weird parasitic diseases and this kind of thing. Or pneumonia. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to discriminate what's going on in those patients. I, you know, I'd love to have a CAT scan in those guys because, you know, we're, I, I've, I've done many unnecessary operations in children in third world countries who have things like worms. Hey, Kenji, Kenji's been to China where he's opened up trauma centers. What are they doing there? Are they doing pan-CT? Do they have CT at all their trauma centers? We're working on things over there right now. So, you know, I, I'm going to agree with what, what all of you guys said. And, and, and you know, just to that uh, last comment, in, there are some places like in Haiti and uh, Nepal after the earthquake where we really wished we had a CT scan. It, it really would have helped us uh, with our decision-making. Um, and it does make things different. And I think that that all circulates back to the last point that I would make, uh, which is that, you know, we keep comparing the physical exam to the CT, and can one replace the other? But the reality is both of them are very important tools, and, and everybody should get that physical exam. And the CT scan is not a replacement for the physical exam, but it's just another tool that uh, is going to help us. And so I think if we have access to it in the right patients, it can be extremely useful. So just winding this session up, I know you guys got to go. We're just going to hit one question down to the panel. The next big focus on trauma to improve outcomes is what? Fill in the blank, kind of a Mad Libs type thing. That's a great question. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that we're looking at right now and we really want to know more about is endovascular control of the aorta. And so um, if I had to pick one thing, I'd probably say uh, we're going to be focusing a lot of our efforts on uh, the indications for the outcomes associated with and the complication burden uh, that comes along with the use of the Reboa. And I'll ask the panel not to repeat and say yes, if you can think of just a few high points, Marty. So, uh, you know, it turns out that about 20% of patients bleed to death as an isolated cause of death after trauma, about 75% of patients die from other things, brain injury, spinal cord injury, multiple organ failure. We're not doing a lot for those things. So I think the greatest thing that's going to be coming up is stem cell therapy. It's going to be my uh, second talk. And the reason why I want to give that talk is because I'm very excited about it because we're seeing improvements in outcomes from brain injury, spinal cord injury, ARDS, and multiple organ failure. And I think the next big thing is going to be with stem cells. Mateo? And uh, I agree with those, and I I hate to say this, but geriatric care. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the aging of the population, you know, we are seeing an epidemic of geriatric trauma. Uh, I think as trauma surgeons, we're often not the greatest at geriatric care and the the multi-specialty care they need. So so I think improving the focus on that patient population outcomes is going to have a a huge impact. Ali? Yeah, I agree. And and I think probably the the, the one thing that we probably don't spend enough time on is is also prevention. You know, I I think we're starting to see, especially in our bigger cities, that violent crime is still prevalent. And in fact, it's also increasing. I think we need to do a better job in terms of our prevention and outreach in terms of decreasing that. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us on BTK. Dominate the day. Thanks, guys. Okay, this is uh, Matt Martin. Uh, I'm the host of the East Trauma Cast and and, uh, great Great to join the Behind the Knife crew, and uh, we heard a great talk this afternoon by uh, Dr. Scott Steele from the Behind the Knife podcast, and so we're turning the tables on him and turning him into the the interviewee. Uh, Scott, you talked about colonic emergencies, Uh, so why is that even important for a crowd like this? You know, this is a trauma meeting. 
Well, I think that obviously with the revolutionization of the way that acute care surgery is being handled by the majority of the trauma surgeons, the people that are available in-house and the vast majority of these patients who have true surgical emergencies are being done by trauma and acute care surgeons. And so, um, you know, historically, and Matt, you would know from that, historically trauma surgeons, you know, you're doing a lot of the ICU heavy stuff, you're doing that, and now, and you kind of got away for a little while in terms of doing a lot of operating, and now you're overtaking that again. So for the trauma acute care surgeon, these are the patients that you're going to see. They're sick, they're septic, they have perforations, uh, and they got stool in the belly, free air, and they oftentimes have multiple, multiple comorbidities. And they also go with along with the resuscitation that the trauma guys are so well uh, aware of and well-skilled in. So you talked about a couple hot-button topics for chronic emergencies, uh, three of them. Let's start with the first one. That's laparoscopic lavage for diverticulitis. Yeah. So this, this obviously was sold as a you can stick a scope in, throw in a bunch of irrigation, suction them out, leave a drain, not have to resect a colon. Uh, what, what do you think's become of that? Has it, uh, has it borne out the, the promise we thought it was going to be, or uh, has it died in the water? You know, I don't think it's died in the water, but it surely hasn't found its place in the algorithm of the management of these patients. We know that there's a certain amount of patients that will do well with antibiotics alone. Those are the patients that are pretty straightforward, but you'd be surprised that in the, in the majority of the early studies, it was the Hinchy 1 and the Hinchy 2 patients that were being successfully managed with laparoscopic lavage. So, of course, you, they probably would have got better with doing nothing alone and putting them on antibiotics and bowel rest. And so it shouldn't be too surprising that you stick a scope in, you, you know, get out some of that inflammatory particulate, and then they get better along with antibiotics. What we're trying to find out is who's the patient that would benefit that, and then more importantly, what do we do? Technically, physically, we're surgeons. We have to do something. And so what do you do about that patient that you go in there and they have the small contained perforation, they're kind of smoldering along, and it's kind of plastered up against the lateral abdominal wall. Do you take that down? What do you do now? Now do you leave a drain? I showed a video of uh, one of my partners who had you know, sewn that drain shut, almost like a gram patch. We don't know that answer of what to do in that patient. And then other people say, the skeptics say, you're there. You can do a sigmoid colectomy very easy in those patients. You can get, you know, we teach our fellows and our residents, you can get below diverticulitis to a nice, soft, healthy rectum. Just take it out, be done with it, and go from there. You're, you've already, the patient has bought a ticket to the movie theater. Let them watch the show. So why don't you give us your, your just top two or three technical tips for doing a lavage. How much irrigation? Do you break up all the adhesions and try and find the hole, or do you leave it alone if it's plastered up? So uh, first of all, how much irrigation? I think it varies depending on the patient. It varies the amount of the degree of contamination. If you go back to the principle, the principle is, is that you want to try to get a, as much of that as possible. So on feculent peritonitis, you're going to need more irrigation to get that out than you're going to need on somebody who has a hinchy tube, for example. And so I wouldn't worry about much uh, is about how, how much, unless you know you're really getting into the heavy irrigation where you're starting to cause some fluid shifts with these particular patients. But your goal is to kind of take down as much of those adhesions as possible. Warm water irrigation is the key in this case. There's nothing like, I don't care if you're doing a laparoscopic lavage and you're taking somebody back for an anastomotic leak. Warm water in patients does more for, for getting some of that kind of really sticky bowel together more than anything else you do. Regarding the takedown, Matt, I, to be completely honest with you, I think it varies by patient. I think it's very different depending on what you see. I don't have an answer for that right now because I think some people would say, yeah, you take it down, and other people would say, you, you have an isolated small section right there. It's already plastered up. Just kind of get that out of there, put them on antibiotics, and they'll get better. So 
I think some of the upcoming trials that are going to look at that, there's a couple of randomized control trials that look at lap lavage. I think we're going to have answers to that particular one. Uh, so moving on to the, to the next topic, uh, one thing you talked about is uh, C. diff colitis and fulminant C. diff and when to take a patient to the OR. And this is this is something that the acute care surgeon probably sees a fair amount of from your internal internal medicine colleagues, uh, consults, and you on a patient who's not doing well with medical management. And it's a difficult decision as to when to take a patient for an operation. And what is the more what is the appropriate operation? I think oftentimes the patients get taken too late to the OR because uh, people are hesitant to do a total abdominalectomy and then put, put somebody with a, an endoleostomy. Is there is there something in between we can do? Is there a better way of, of operatively managing these patients? And how do you decide when is the appropriate time to take them to the operating room? You know, Jay, that's a great question that really doesn't have a ideal answer. What I can tell you is you have to go back to principles in these patients. And if you take the background information that. 40 to 50% of these patients who are, have fulminant colitis that you take for a colectomy are going to die. That's the barrier that we have to get by. And so you can all see the patient that is, you know, you know they're going to die. And, you, again, they're just, they got multiple comorbidities. They're on systemic pressors, all this other thing. But you have to say to yourself is that also with the background information is that C. diff in general is a medically treated disease, right? We only operate on a very small percentage of C. difficile patients. And then if you take that same principle in light of source control, you know that, that in many cases that the patient has overcome a barrier where the antibiotics alone aren't going to do enough, that you have to do something for source control. The most interesting aspect about what we talked about today is that with diverting loop ileostomy and irrigation, and I, we've had a chance to, to talk to Brian on BTK, and I encourage all of our listeners out there to go to the academic surgical conference and listen to Brian Zuckerbron's talk about how it came about, how he came up with this idea, and, and kind of where we're at. The more interesting question to me is why hasn't there been any, I mean, that study is several years old now, why hasn't there been any large-scale trials since that time that document a longer-term experience or a more robust experience? And until we have that data, it's very difficult to say where that fits into the algorithm because that's what we truly need. In regards to your question of when to do, yeah, obviously that, that's a very, very difficult question. You don't want to take somebody who's going to get better with medical management, but you don't want to wait until the time that they're septic. And so um, I think that that differs based on the patient that you're going to be able to say, what can they stand? So if I give you somebody who has end-stage renal disease or pulmonary hypertension or something, you know, you know that you got to get in maybe a little bit early. But those always are the patients that you don't want to. It's the same analogy as for immunosuppressed patients with diverticulitis. We know they do poor, more poorly, whatever the – I'm from Wisconsin at the end of the day uh, – more poor with um, – with, uh, medical management alone, and, and so you're more apt to take those patients to the operating room, do a, a resection. But you also know that on the balancing that with the fact that they're going to probably do worse, they have a higher morbidity and even a higher mortality with them. So it's a very difficult situation. So in your practice, who gets a diverting loop ileostomy and colonic lavage? You know, Matt, if, if anyone. Yeah, you know, Matt. Right now, I'm not doing it uh, because what I'm finding is that um, until I, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm, I just want to, you know. There was a wonderful slide in the afternoon today. It said, don't be the first to jump on something or the last to get off. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm waiting for a little bit more experience. I will tell you this. So I I can't really say that I haven't done it because I did have a patient that uh, what we did do is we had – um, we kind of hedged our bets a little bit. We uh, did a decompress, very, you know, was was not super sick yet, 
um, but wasn't responding to anything. Actually, it had a fecal transplant and didn't respond to that. And what we did is we did a decompressive colonoscopy, left a rectal tube, and then actually did retrograde, although in that case, anagrade irrigation, because it was all the way over on the right side, irrigation through the rectal tube of vancomycin. We just didn't do the diverting loop ileostomy. But again, the goal of the diverting loop ileostomy, as we talked about, and as far as, uh, as far as I understand it, is the fact that the majority of these patients are going to have an ileus. So you can't do it through an NG tube. It's not going to get to where it needs to be. So we're getting the concentrations and the volumes that we need directly on the colon. And it also decompresses a little bit with your loop ileostomy. So we were just doing it without the loop ileostomy, but getting it to where we need or, uh, doing those same principles. All right, and then the final topic was uh, the role of a Hartman's procedure uh, for pick your left-sided colonic emergency. Uh, and uh, I think you led towards we should be doing a lot less Hartman's than we have in the past. Um, and what do you think we should be doing instead of a Hartman's? So I think in the majority of the cases that you have to say to yourself, what are you there for? What disease process? For example, diverticulitis you should be able to get below healthy diverticulitis to healthy rectum. I mean, that's principle number one. If you're not able to get down to healthy rectum, you need to say to yourself, what am I dealing with? Is this Crohn's? Is this UC? Is, this, is it something weird? What, what, what are we dealing with? And then you have to look at how the operation is going, meaning, as you know, as a trauma surgeon, Matt, your you know, damage control principles have carried their way from the trauma battlefield and way into even elective general surgery when things go awry. So should you be doing anastomosis alone? Do you leave them with an open abdomen? All those things can kind of use the same type of um, analogy into the situation. But in this particular case, what I would tell you is that if you can get down and, you're, and you have a bad anastomosis, you're not going to, you know, you got to make a decision. Should I give that guy a Hartman and should I divert him? How bad is it? Do I get a positive air leak? What am I going to do with that particular patient? What I'm telling you is that the data would bear out in meta-analyses as well as, and there's very few, there's one, maybe two randomized control trials on this place is that, on this particular topic is that in the majority of cases, you know that when you pull up a Hartman's, just so you know, about one-third of those patients or more are never going to get it taken down, that your wound infection rate is going to be higher, that your morbidity is going to be higher, your length of stay is going to be higher, another thing. And no, some of those is because of selection bias, because of these studies that are out there, we all know that. But what I would tell you is that in many cases, if you can get a good, sound anastomosis, even in the acute setting, and somebody who you think, you know, that you, know, that you didn't have any technical errors on and you're hedging your bets, bringing up a loop ileostomy, that patient may still have an untoward outcome, but they probably would still get that whether or not you did a Hartman's or did a primary, diver- primary anastomosis and diverting loop ileostomy. So what's the difference then in, in dealing with that patient later, the diverting loop ileostomy versus a Hartman's? Yeah, great question. And obviously you know the answer to it, but we have a lot of listeners on BTK is that a loop is just so much easier on the patient. Now, a colostomy may be easier for the patient to care for, a thicker stool, more solid, less fluid and electrolyte uh, problems that an ileostomy is going to give you in the short term. So you may have to be managing that on that loop ileostomy side. And I, I don't want to, with my previous answer, I don't want to uh, ignore that fact. But what I would tell you is that the patients that have a colostomy, that's a big operation to take them back. As a matter of fact, one of the hardest cases sometimes I've had to do are these colostomy takedowns. I've had a patient nearly bleed to death on the, on the, on the table. I've had a few times that it was so stuck that I had to back out versus a loop ileostomy that you can do a small circumferential mucocutaneous junction uh, and in both ends are right there. So you can do a side-to-side anastomosis, take it down, and that patient can do really well with that. All right, so last question. You have the patient who had pretty bad perforated diverticulitis, but you resected them, hooked them back up, did a diverting loop ileostomy. 
What's the general timing of taking that down, or, or what's the earliest I should be looking at reversing that? So um, what I would tell you is that everybody's practice varies. It, it, it's funny that you even – we didn't talk about this, but that you asked me this question because I just asked this question. I gave a grand rounds down in Florida, and I asked people what they do, and some of them wait three months. I wait about eight weeks. Some other people that I know wait four to six weeks to go from there. What I would tell you is that in general, I, I think you know six to eight weeks is probably fine. Eight weeks is fine. That's what we do a lot of times. Don't be hesitant if you're having a patient that you did a diverting loop ileostomy on and everything went well technically. You didn't have a big hole or something that you're just like, you know, or a technical problem. And you're having a lot of problems with these patients in terms of ileostomy output, volume loss, electrolyte abnormalities. That, that is the patient that I always say to myself when I find myself in that situation that I can't control medically, and I'm at three weeks even, that the patient's miserable. I can't get them out of their initial hospitalization because I can't slow down their ileostomy effluent, get a gastrograph and enema, and see if you can take it down. The key there is to understand is that that's a much more difficult ileostomy in many cases to take down because you're at that time period when you've just been back in that belly, the adhesions can be very dense, and you may find yourself in a situation where you can't do it locally, and you might find yourself in the untoward circumstance where you have to go back through the midline and now you're really battling. But that is a situation that has come up in the past, and you have to say to yourself, can I take it down a little earlier than I'd like? All right. Well, it was a great talk, and, and I think uh, three areas where management is changing markedly from what we used to do. Okay, so we're just joining the afternoon session and uh, just finished with one of our, uh, with one of our uh, symposium. And gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. A very hot topic this afternoon that we kind of got into. And so if you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and just introduce yourself, where you're from, and then we'll delve right into it. I'm Dr. Mike Seiss from uh, Scripps Mercy Hospital uh, in San Diego. I'm Raul Coimbra from University of California, San Diego. So, Mike, we'll start with you first. And so, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of, I, I know we got a limited time here, but just summarize some of the high points of what you kind of talked about today and maybe a little bit about what the controversy regarding the Reboa is. Well, we talked about Reboa uh, and basically asked the question, is it ready for prime time? And how should we, would, uh, how should we use Reboa in our patients where aortic occlusion would help us as a bridge step to controlling hemorrhage and treating the patient in shock? And as a vascular surgeon, I use Reboa with ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. In fact, we're somewhat of a referral center, not like, unlike UCSD. We haven't done an open ruptured aneurysm repair in almost two years. At the same time, we've done quite a few REVARs, ruptured endovascular aneurysm repairs. And the first step in that is to take the patient to the operating room, prep and drape, just like old school. Don't put the patient asleep until you're ready to cut. And then induce them, slide the balloon up, and avoid having to open. So I think there's going to be a role in certain settings for us as trauma surgeons who need to temporarily occlude the aorta to put up the right catheter in the right setting, inflate it as a bridge step to getting open control, and in, in some instances, as Rollo and I have talked about, maybe even endovascular control of an injury that we've got a, a good definition in. The difference is that ruptured aneurysm is more or less one disease. Mm -hmm. Pretty much 90% of them are infrarenal, occasionally suprarenal. And it's, it's something we know the anatomy. We don't always know the anatomy in our patients with shock from a 
penetrating or blunt torso injury. Now, Ro, you have experience with this as well, and I think one of the things that came out of this is the the precautions or the dangers. They met, you guys both spoke about the Japanese study, and just can you touch a little bit about what are some of the what are some of the side effects of this or the dangers in kind of going that, and why the both of you said maybe it's a good time that we take a step back and wait a little bit until more of the data comes out about who the indications and the contraindications are for this. Sure, um, I think that. Um, it's exciting uh, to see that new technology uh, can and will be used to uh, treat trauma patients that present in shock after blunt and penetrating injury. However, we need to separate the excitement uh, and, and uh, have a, take a hard look at this issue from two points of view. One is the point of view of training and credentialing. This is not a simple procedure that people will do once or twice and be uh, an expert. So there are complications associated with it. And the second is the indications for the procedure. In trauma, uh, if we are going to use this the way we use resuscitative trochotomy, we are going to fail. Because is lighting a catheter inside the arterial system in a patient that has no blood pressure and no pulse is not an easy task. So I don't think that the comparison between reboa and resuscitative trochotomy for patients in cardiac arrest after trauma is fair. That's my point number one. My point number two is that there might be a group of patients that will benefit from this more than others. And in my opinion, is the patient that has a blood pressure between 60 and 80, which allows you to thread the catheter up in the aorta because the patient has blood pressure and has a pulse and has pelvic fractures with significant hemorrhage. Because you can control the bleeding by occluding the aorta approximately, and then you can definitively control the bleeding by performing embolization and then deflating the balloon. So I think that uh, the excitement is good, but we need to understand what it takes to be credentialed to do this procedure, and we need to have a clear uh, understanding of the uh, of the indications. Well, going back to you, Dr. Slice, uh, we've been talking about the learning curve with the Raboa, and we we asked the same question to Dr. Nabo not too long ago. And what, in your experience, what is how long does it take to be proficient with the Raboa? And you know, you think with newer generation of surgeons who grew up in the endovascular era, where we are starting to do endovascular procedures as residents, will that help that you know gain that uh, gain that um, proficiency with the Raboa earlier? Well, yes, I think it will if you have adequate experience. Um, I partner with my interventional radiologist as co-surgeons when we do endovascular aneurysm repairs and just did this one this last week. And I must say that the more catheter skills I gain, the more respectful I become of catheters. And as we're all said, you know, even in a healthy aorta, a significant number of those catheters don't end up where you first want to put them. And that wire is not easy to pass. And I cringe when I think of, of using those catheters, first of all, inexperienced surgeons or emergency medicine physicians using those catheters, not fully understanding the risk of blowing up a balloon in the aorta. And in patients who may have survived, a little bit hypotensive, may have survived to the OR without anything other than a rapid surgical intervention, who now have a catheter inflated somewhere. Uh, The Japanese have lost numerous limbs with a larger catheter, even with a small catheter. So 
As someone who does vascular surgery in addition to trauma surgery, I have a, a great deal of respect for catheters, and I think that we need to teach that respect as we're teaching catheter skills. And, and kind of along those same lines, there's, a, there's an excellent question from the audience, and it's something we've heard echoed from other surgeons that say, hey, I, you know, I'm kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, could this be a bridge to more definitive therapy? Let's say I get a AAA. I'm two hours from, from a center that can handle it. Uh, why don't I just put a, blow up a balloon and send them over to you guys? What do you say to that person? Well, I, I would say that there is the technical feasibility and difficulty. Um, obviously, a, a aortic aneurysm is not just like putting a catheter in a normal aorta, and the catheter may not end up where you want it to be, number one. So there is a technical aspect related to the disease process. But then, too, there is the issue of the consequences of prolonged aortic occlusion. If you're in a remote location that you need to transport the patient to a high level of care and uh, you're going to keep that balloon inflated for several hours, that's going to have significant consequences to the patient as well. And in the case of a AAA, which was the question asked by the audience, um, you've got to put that balloon above the renal vessels and eventually above the diaphragm because, you know, the, the balloon moves as the heart beats. So you need to put the balloon always a little higher than the, the spot that you want because it will move down. And with that, you're going to have significant ischemia. So I, I don't think it's, it's the right procedure for that patient. And uh, um, I think that uh, in that circumstance, it's better to not delay transfer and start resuscitating. You know, I, th I can't agree more with our role. You know, as a tertiary referral center, both of our centers have trans transfers in from the Imperial Valley, which is to the east of us towards Arizona. And we'll get ruptured aneurysms brought into both our centers who've been hypotensive, had the diagnosis, and who've been hypotensive for two or three hours. We take them to the operating room, and it's an example of hypotensive resuscitation that we've learned in trauma. You, they get a, almost a diving reflux. They, their heart rate slows. They drop their pressure, and they stay alive sometimes for hours, especially if you don't give them fluid and don't cause their pressure to go up. And then if you intervene frequently with an endovascular technique, you can save their lives. I am absolutely convinced, and it's echoed in the Japanese experience in trauma, we are going to have patients who would have survived with a prompt, thoughtful transfer who will die mm -hmm. with Reboa. Absolutely for certain. And the thought is, you know, especially in the military applications that is performing this Reboa earlier in the field and whatnot, what is your thought on emergency physicians and paramedics performing this? We talked about this briefly in the panel discussion. Well, I think if it's coupled, you know, remember that when you were downrange, you had many emergency medicine physicians doing your initial resuscitation in the shock platoons or in the forward stations, and certainly in my Navy colleagues, who got those patients to my surgical colleagues who were downrange and saved their lives. That's one thing. We have an organized system where the first intervention is keeping that person alive long enough to rapidly transport to a surgeon who can control the bleeding. That's completely different. In our trauma centers, it's us who meet the patient. So our emergency medicine physicians, if they're part of our team helping us do it, it's one thing. But an emergency medicine physician in a rural setting or anywhere who inflates a balloon in the aorta without a surgeon waiting to treat the cause of the hemorrhage initially will not save the patient. So as we finish up this, uh, this uh, mini podcast here, 
I want to go back to your lecture, and I'm going to ask you more of a global. What wonderful lecture about surgical exposure and kind of getting to where you need to be. I'll ask you from somebody who, so I'm a colorectal surgeon. We have everybody that listens to our podcast, everywhere from medical students or wannabe medical students all the way up to the chairman of surgery. And so kind of with that in, as a background, when I was in the military and I was getting ready to go, I'm a colorectal surgeon, and I knew I was going to do trauma. How do you guys envision how you can keep people abreast of saying, listen, this is the proper way to get down in the subclavian, or this is how you rip out a clavicle. I mean, how, how do we, because we have many general surgeons, people I talk to, like, and you know they're bleeding, they're scared, the, the tension is up, all these different things. And so how do you teach that? How do you keep those skills when they maybe do one or none in several years in, is a textbook enough? Is there something that we can do that's a little bit different as you go into the future in charge of is simulation there? Or what, what do we do about this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, first and foremost, I think that civilian trauma centers have a responsibility in partnering with our military counterparts to maintain the skills of those that are staying military in, in times of peace. I, I think it's very important to open the doors of our trauma centers, our universities, our uh, level one centers to military personnel that uh, want to maintain their skills in trauma. I think that's step number one. For the, the injuries that I address in my talk, which are very difficult areas for vascular exposure, um, I think that there are a number of uh, opportunities for uh, education. You know, the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma has two phenomenal courses that we teach residents and we should teach, uh, folk, and we teach folks deploying as well. Uh, that's, uh, uh, there are wonderful courses. One is the ATOM course in, in, in animals, and uh, more importantly, the ASSET course, in my opinion, uh, which is done in cadavers, where you can demonstrate and practice all those difficult approaches that I described. Those are two examples. All over the world, there are a number of courses that are very similar to those. The Japanese have their own version. The Europeans have their own version. Uh, but I think it's, it's constant training and practice. I always tell... <clears throat> Uh, my fellows and, and my, my partners, my junior partners, that uh, to be skilled in vascular trauma, you need to spend a long time in the cadaver lab. Those are injuries that you don't learn to treat in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. never done one, or with somebody that has done one that's going to take you through the case. No, you need to go to the cadaver lab. You need to learn the details of the approach so you're effective when you have to do it. And one final question for, for each of you. I know we all want to get back to the conference. So real quick, you're both experts in your field, both vascular surgeons, trauma surgeons. Uh, just fill in the blank. The next big thing in vascular trauma is what? I think it's, in my opinion, uh, for specific indications, I think Reboa will c catch on. There is no question about it. As technology evolves, we are going to see it being used more and more for the right indications. Um, and I think that the evolution and development of better stents uh, has revolutionized the management of vascular trauma and will continue to do so. I think endovascular uh, approaches uh, for management of vascular trauma have to be embraced by vascular and trauma surgeons. Uh, otherwise, you're going to miss the boat and the interventional radiologists will take it over. Well, I agree with Raul on the advance of effective endovascular techniques up to and including a, a deployable stent 
that you can deploy right into the artery with a cellulose wrap that dissolves and expands so that you won't need to suture in a repair. You could have a PTFE, a Gore-Tex collapse stent graft that you can just put in the artery uh, with the right size and be a definitive repair. Now, that being said, there are still injuries that require open technique. And Raul touched on the courses. I think it's going to be absolutely mandatory that we have colleagues in each of our trauma centers who, although they may not be vascular surgeons, are capable in open vascular surgery. Remember, around the United States right now, if a currently trained vascular surgeon gets a ruptured aneurysm that they need to go open on, many of them call the trauma surgeons for exposure. The the core ability to do open vascular surgery is disappearing fast. We are going to have to do something in trauma and acute care surgery to reestablish and concentrate that ability in members who become basically acute care, on-call acute care vascular surgeons. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here today on BTK. And that concludes our first combined East TraumaCast and Behind the Knife podcast from the 2016 Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery Las Vegas Conference. I want to thank Scott Steele, John McClellan, and Jason Bingham for all the hard work they did in putting this together. And a special thanks, of course, to Ken Maddox and Mary Allen, uh, who put together the best trauma conference in the world. If you're interested in hearing more from this conference, please go to the Behind the Knife podcast website or on iTunes to listen to more interviews from days two and days three of this great meeting. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.